Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. So if you were listening to Top 40 Radio back in the spring of 71, then you no doubt are familiar with the song One Toke Over the Line by Brewer and Shipley. But there's a lot more to the duo than that song. We'll get into it today with Michael Brewer. But I've got to say, the story of One Toke itself is pretty great, especially the part about the Lawrence Welk version. Here's our talk with Michael Brewer. Uh, I lived for numerous years. I've lived uh, a few miles outside of Branson, the world's largest roadside oddity. <laughs> Do you play there? No, my gosh, no. Uh, yeah, you don't no, seem was, like the type to play in Branson, Missouri. No, I was here three days, and the writing was on the wall. This this town doesn't have anything to do with the music business I've always been in. Uh, today, I would like to start out by just something that really amazed me about you, which is that it uh, seems like a lot of the people I talk to start young in music, but I read that you performed on radio at age ah. four. Uh, that's true. So you got them I all had, beat. Yeah, well, I had I had kind of a showbiz mom. In fact, she was a starlet in Hollywood back in the 40s. She uh, decided whether she wanted to continue to have a career in the movies or uh, move back to Oklahoma City and marry my dad. Okay. And I'm glad she, she made the choice she made. <laughs> <laughs> she had me on stage. She was also a, a music teacher out of the home. And so my brothers and sisters and I, we all grew up playing piano and pretty much any instrument we showed interest in our parents made sure we had one yeah there was music in our house every day and yeah she had me on the radio at four years old and various stages you know doing this and that and yeah always made music i think you got the record for my podcast i don't think anyone's going to beat that four-year-old thing i don't either i doubt it i have my first solo cd it's called retro man begins and ends with a very old 78 RPM scratchy recording of me and God bless America and you are my sunshine. That's great. But uh, but eventually yeah. you moved on to the guitar. Yeah, well actually I was a singing drummer before that. I oh. was in a rock and roll band in high school. I was the perfect age for original rock and roll. And in a, I was a singing drummer in a rock and roll band. Jesse Ed Davis was uh, the guitar player. He and I graduated from high school together. And uh, I read that you hit the folk circuit like right out of high school? Yeah, well, before that even, actually, yeah. I started really? playing guitar, sold my drums, folk music came along, and uh, I sold my drums and got a Martin D-18 and started learning some chords and folk songs. And I was fortunate that there were some folk rooms in Oklahoma City, and this is when folk music, there was a whole circuit of clubs across the country. So I got to uh, play the folk rooms and and uh, open for a whole lot of artists who went on to be big. Of course, at the time, in the folk field, some of them were really big. And I uh, got to got to meet a lot of people. There was a club called the Boot Eye that when I finally got good enough, there was a little club called uh, uh, the Webb Coffee House. A man named Penfield Cowan, who was the curator of the Oklahoma State Museum at the time, operated it. And he let me get on stage anytime I wanted to. And I finally got good enough to open for people at the Boot Eye, which was the main club. And that's where I really got to uh, meet a whole lot of people. And in fact, I'll give you a connected story. There was a stool from the stage at the web, really old. I have it today. Penn gave it to me years ago. Uh, the derriers of Janis Joplin, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Burl Ives, Theodore Bikel have sat on that stool. So on the occasion I do a solo show, I always take it along 
and sit on it to remind myself where I come from. Wow, that's very one cool. Of my faith, one of my prized possessions. I bet, yeah. All those butts. Yeah. <laughs> All those famous kid, yeah. butts. <laughs> <laughs> so you met your partner for the first time on the road somewhere? Yeah, we met at a little coffee house in Kent, Ohio called The Blind Owl because Tom's from the Cleveland area. Mm -hmm. Made a whole lot of friends there that are still friends to this day. And uh, Tom was a solo folk singer and I was a solo folk singer. And we saw each other's pictures on dressing room walls and stuff. And we finally met, and became friends. And I ended up in LA before he did. And uh, I was living on a street called Fountain Avenue. It was a really interesting neighborhood, a lot of musicians around there. When Tom came to town about a year after I did, uh, he ran the corner from me. He moved into a place next door to Jim Messina, who was a recording engineer at the time, how he was earning his living. But anyway, uh, talk about an interesting neighborhood. Buffalo Springfield formed in the house next door to me. And if they weren't next door, they were hanging out at my place. Our band and the Buffalo Springfield, the first shows we ever did, we got to open for the birds when Eight Miles High was their current single. It uh, must yeah. have been an amazing scene in L.A. when, when oh, all that it, was it going. it really was. But yeah, we were right there in the middle of it. Now, you were, though, I read, writing uh, for A&M. Our guy at Columbia Records, Alan Stanton, was leaving to go to a brand new label, A&M Records, and he took me under his wing and signed me as a staff songwriter. And then Tom came to town, and as I said, we were friends and everything, so he was we were hanging out started writing some songs together and he became a staff songwriter for one of A&M's publishing companies also. We'd go to the studio and record demos on the songs for them to pitch to other artists and uh, they were really good. We got some cuts but they didn't sound like demos. They sounded like records. So A&M said, well, why don't you guys record your own songs? So we did and that's how our first album came about down in L.A. That's that. great. But you left L.A. Yeah, that's why we named, named our album Down in L.A. We just... It just really wasn't our deal, you know. We we missed the heartland. We missed fresh air. But you got to remember too about the time we left the smog in L.A. that last summer. Oh my God, it was it was like Beijing or someplace. It was oh, so horrible. Yeah. And the whole Charlie Manson thing was going on. Oh, the Vietnam right. More protests and the police were like the Gestapo. And it was just we were just sick of the whole the whole scene there. So we decided to do it the hard way. Just about the time we finished the album, we decided to leave. We had two gigs booked, one in Detroit, as a matter of fact, and one in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we got to Tulsa and they canceled on us because we looked like hippies and we were singing songs about peace and love and protesting the Vietnam War and they were afraid their clientele would beat us up. <laughs> so we were, we were kind of screwed. So anyways, Tom went on to, uh, went back to Ohio to hang out with his parents for a while. And I went back to Oklahoma City to hang out with my family. Long story short, somewhere down the line, I got a phone call from somebody interested in, in us, wanting to know if we did, wanted to do some college shows in Wisconsin. So I called Tom, and he said, sure, absolutely. So I flew to Cleveland, and we hopped in his, his old beat-up, whatever kind of car he had at the time, and made it about 70 miles, and the engine blew up. We had to call his dad. Oh. <laughs> so we traveled by Greyhound bus all oh. over the state of Wisconsin. And if we were lucky, you know, the the local student activity director would give us a ride on to the next school or something. It was pretty bizarre. But it gave us an opportunity to uh, hone hone down some, some, some of our songs and, and start getting better because we had hardly performed at all. 
in L.A. You know, it was like you know, open mic night at the Troubadour, you know, or the or the Ice House in Pasadena or something like that. So there really wasn't a whole lot of performing, and we really missed performing. So we were back on the road, and while we were on that tour, we got a call from some friends in Kansas City. There was a club called the Vanguard Coffee House. Tom and I both had played this solo. In fact, while we were still in L.A., we flew back there one time over Christmas and New Year's to play. And our opening act was Steve Martin when he was still working at Disneyland. No kidding. So we became oh, wow. good friends with him. Yeah, then. And uh, anyway, the friends from Kansas City called and they felt the same way we did. They were really wanting to be more involved in the music business and start a production company. But they needed somebody with a record. And we just happened to have a brand new album. So we moved to Kansas City and together with some friends started a company called Good Karma Productions. No contracts, no nothing. You know, just, hey, it was the 60s. What can I tell you? One thing led to another and we just started building a following and then we got out of our record deal with A&M. Because in those days, if you didn't live in L.A. or San Francisco or Nashville or New York, the industry didn't think you were in the business. Mm -hmm. These days, you can live anywhere you want to. You right. know, phone in, you part but so we got out of our contract and we ended up going to the east coast and, and landed a deal with uh, buddha kama sutra records because uh, neil bogart was the ceo of the company at the time and this is when fm radio was brand new it was called underground radio and you know you never heard somebody's hit single it was all about albums and album cuts and whatever right and he was looking for album because he was known as the bubble gum hits like yummy 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 i got love in my tummy oh yeah it's like that so he wanted us because we were definitely album artists, and they signed us, so we ended up going back to San Francisco and recording our Weeds album. And that's how we started uh, with Buddha Kama Sutra. We did five albums for them. And uh, he wanted you because you were album artists, and then you, you have a huge hit. <laughs> I know. I'm sure he uh, wasn't disappointed. That, no. <laughs> that, was the next, that was the next album. That was Tarkio. Right. It's funny about that, you know, because when we wrote One Took Over the Line, we didn't even take it seriously, man. We, it was a joke song to us. We literally wrote that song to make our friends laugh and just entertaining ourselves. One night uh, at the Vanguard Coffee House, we, on break before our last set, a friend came by with some really good Lebanese hash. And we stepped out back and came back in. And we were tuning up. And Tom says, man, I'm One Took Over the Line. I just cracked up. I was <laughs> singing One Took Over the Line. So the next day we got together and in about an hour we had a song and we hadn't even planned to record it. But the first time we played Carnegie Hall, we opened for Melanie and uh, we went over really well, got several encores and basically ran out of songs. And so we said to ourselves, well, let's do that new song, nothing to lose. So we did. And everybody loved it. And Neil Bogart was there and he came back and he says, oh, you got to record that. You got to add that to the <laughs> album, which kind of surprised us. So we said, OK, so we did. And then he wanted to release it as a single. But in those days, a single could only be three minutes and 10 seconds long. And it was way longer than that because it had a third verse to it. I don't remember it being that long. I played it. No, no. It, we had to cut it down to 310. Oh. We had to, edit, we had to edit an entire verse. And in those days, it wasn't digital technology. Yeah. We literally had to mark the master tape with chalk and cut it with a razor blade and hope we got it right. Yes, I know. Uh, and, I, I did that kind of editing, did. too. Yes. Yeah. No stress there. But you had a backup, right? You had to have a backup. Uh, no, it was the master tape. Oh. That was, that was it. Yeah, we would have had to have re-recorded it had we screwed oh, it up. Oh, I would just uh, freak anyway, out. Oh, it was horrible. It was very tense. But the engineer got it right. And to this day, when I listen to it, I can hear it. 
because, you know, it built, the song built more because we had to edit out a whole thing. So when it comes to the edit, everything just kind of jumps ahead with a little bit more punch and volume. It still cracks me up when I hear it today, but I don't think anybody's ever noticed it. Is it the long version on the album then? No, no, no. The original recording has never been out then. Actually, it's on something. I just heard it not long ago. I can't remember what it was on. I I don't even know. There have been so many bootleg releases and other releases of our stuff. I I can't, I don't even know. But I heard it recently. Yeah, it still had the, uh, it might have been a live recording or something. I really can't. Oh, okay. So when you played it live, you played the full version. Uh, Well, we used to, but then we just started doing it like the single. Because everyone was used to it. Yeah. Everyone was used to it. Yeah, because I was thinking, no, it wasn't that long, was it? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, Neil decided to release it as a single and uh, threw it out there, and uh, it went shooting up the charts, and we were in big trouble. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) Government. (laughs) But the Nixon administration. Oh, yes, of course. We made Nixon's enemies list, which we hold as a badge of honors to this day. For sure. Vice President Agnew named us personally on national TV one night as subversive (laughs) to American youth. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember having a meeting with the, at WLS in Chicago. Uh, they were they were wanting to go ahead and play it because a lot of other stations, you know, because Nixon was threatening radio stations with their with their licenses. The FCC was threatening them with their licenses if they didn't censor so called drug lyrics in rock and roll. And to us, it was the equivalent of burning books. It was ridiculous. Sure. I mean, Puff Magic Dragon was on that list, for God's sake. It was ridiculous. <laughs> so anyway, they said, "Are are you behind us if we play this?" And we said, "Absolutely." So they started playing it, and there were a whole lot of other people started playing it, and it went shooting up the charts. And uh, thanks to a lot of people who liked it and requested it, it went on to be a, a big hit. Even though it was banned in the UK, really it was played over there, huh. yeah, because wow. of the controversy over here. Well, you were just telling people not to overindulge, right? Well, uh, yeah, except for Lawrence Welk. That's right. That that version is classic. I. <laughs> You know what? It's it's funny, you know, so I, I'm, I'm researching, uh, you know, to prepare for talking to you today. And I heard about the Lawrence Welk version <laughs> and I had yeah. a look at it and just it unbelievable. Cra- we, we didn't see it. We were in London at the time. Crack me up. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my mother was watching it and my brother came walking by just the time they, they started playing it. My mother was going, no, Lawrence, no, no. Lawrence. <laughs> so, so 32 years later. My wife, bless her heart, finally figured out how to do it, got a copy of it, and we put it on YouTube for the world to see. Well, thank you for that, because I got a big laugh, and my wife got a big laugh out of it, too. Yeah, and Laura's wife, of course, referred to it as a modern-day spiritual. It must have been the sweet Jesus. It was the sweet Jesus, yes, of course. Well, you know, the duo, Dale and Gail, who sang it, Dale has passed away. A couple of years ago, we were playing, I can't remember the name of the town now, not far from Philadelphia, doing a concert. Gail Farrell and her husband flew all the way from L.A. to Philly and drove to wherever we were just to come to our show. And we went out to dinner with them, and uh, they were she, she's very nice. She and her husband were very, very nice. And we asked her, did did you have any idea? She says, you'll have to wait for the book. She wouldn't even answer. <laughs> well, you know, being in the Branson area, too, for 32 years now, uh, I know the uh, Lennon brothers, the kids of the Lennon sisters, you know, they grew up on the Lawrence Welk set. And I asked them, did you, did anybody have a clue what they were singing about? And he says, oh, I guarantee you that some of the guys in the band did. Yeah, I bet they did. <laughs> Apparently nobody else did. They were the only ones who knew. What yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
No, it still cracks me up. It is. How did she find it? I mean, you know, I found it on YouTube. Again, there used to be a Laura's Welk Theater here, and the Lennon Sisters had a show, and, and, you know, this kind of town Branson is. And the lady who was in charge of all of the archival Laura's Welk shows, lady in her 80s at the time, uh, my wife got in touch with her, and she went digging around, and she found it and burned a CD for us. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad she did. Or a DVD, I mean. A DVD, yeah, I'm glad she did. Yeah, well, I waited 32 years to see the dang thing, so I'm glad she did, too. <laughs> so it was pretty controversial, obviously, like you say, and I, I read that even the ACLU wanted you guys to make a big deal out of it and make it like a test. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, all kinds of people wanted us to do this and do that. We were just going, man, it's just another song. You know, to us, it was still a joke song. Tom and I, uh, you know, we're, we're always more about uh, ballads and peace and love songs and social, com- well, that, of course, what took social commentary, but coming from the folk era, uh, we've always written a lot of songs, that social commentary songs. And I'm glad for that, too, because I got to tell you, Mark, so many people over the years come into our shows and then, you know, signing autographs and stuff afterwards tell us that growing up in the heartland, especially back in those days, they felt co- totally alone. Mm-hmm. You know, they just felt like strangers in a strange land, you know, nobody around them, their family, their friends, nobody felt the same way they did about things until they heard our records. And all of a sudden they thought, wow, I'm not alone after all. And that's how we made a whole lot of our fans because of the social commentary song. You know, you played one. I, I watched the video of your interview with uh, that uh, a Bridge 90.9 from KC. Uh-huh. You did a song I hadn't heard before, Streets of America. I thought that was an incredibly great song. Oh, yeah, I love that song. And yeah, certainly really very it. relevant uh, to everything that we're living with today. Certainly is. I think of numerous, I have four solo CDs, and... Uh, there are so many songs on them that uh, just are still so relevant. They just could have been written today, you know, in my opinion. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first one I mentioned a while ago called Retro Man, it, the, almost the entire album was inspired by the George W. Bush administration. <laughs> me ranting and raving. <laughs> Pretty funny. But you said something very interesting on that show, which I've, I've said myself, which is, you know, you had the problem with Nixon, and yet you would like to have Nixon right now. I take him back in a heartbeat. That's how I feel too. As much as I hated him, <laughs> right. I would take him back in a heartbeat. Yeah, the Antichrist is in the White House. We didn't know how good we had it, did we? No, but you know what? It was horrible at the time too. You know, Vietnam was raging. Oh yeah, and we had a long, long way to go as far as civil rights is concerned. It still do. Yes. You know what? I'm, I'm, this feels different to me this time. It does. I agree I with you. I just hope and pray that maybe we're finally at a point where we're gonna finally start changing some shit. I hope you know? so. It feels like it, but uh, we've been let down before. Yes, we have. That's what I'm talking about. Back the Nixon administration and other administrations and everything. You know. Jeez, you know, I thought after Martin Luther King's assassination, things were going to change. Well, some things did, but not nearly, nearly enough. Right, exactly. So what do you think uh, in terms of a career? And, you know, and again, here's a, here's a song that you guys did as, as kind of a lark, you know, and it turned out to be a huge hit. What does that mean for your life? What has that meant for your career personally? Well, hmm. It means that that's what we're most known for, which is kind of unfortunate because Tom and I have made a bunch of records and written a bunch of songs, and Brewer and Shipley has always been way more than one took over the line. Sure. So it, it categorized us, you know. It, it helped us in some ways. It you know, made us a couple of bucks for us, 
kind of some uh, notoriety, some fame, but at the same time, it's held us back in other ways. You know, it's just it's it's been a mixed blessing. Uh -huh. Actually, yeah, it's I don't have any regrets. You know, I have I have no regrets at all about anything Tom and I have ever ever done together. Mm -hmm. So you were together, and you did uh, after one toke, you did a ton of touring, right? Oh gosh, yeah. You know, we we had already been on the road forever. Like from the folk days and then, you know, a brief period of time in L.A. when we weren't on the road, we were writing songs and doing other things. But then when we got back to the heartland, yeah, we were, that's the only way we could earn a living. Mm -hmm. So we were just touring all the time. And then one toke hit, and then we really started touring a lot. And in about 1980, uh, we were fried, man. We were just toast. We were so sick of the road. We just couldn't stand it. And doing shows just wasn't fun anymore. We just both needed a break. Well, I can understand that. I I, uh, I read that you opened once for Black Sabbath. Yes, we did in Chicago. Can't Chicago, imagine. The only time in our entire career we were booed off a stage. And dig this, when we got in the dressing room, the promoter looked at his watch and he says, you guys didn't play long enough. He, he goes, I'm not going to pay you if you don't go back out. Said, Are you kidding me? So they're going to they're going to hurt us. So he made us do it, or he wasn't going to pay us. We had to go back out, and as we're coming back out of the stage, you can hear the audience. Go, mm. <laughs> and I ran to the microphone. And I said, "They're making us come back for one more song. Don't throw any beer bottles or anything. We don't want to be here more than you don't want us to be here." Talk. So we did one more song and got the hell off the stage. Talk about a bad oh, bit. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I got mixed up. No, we we did open for Black Sabbath, but that was in, in Cleveland. The one I'm thinking about in Chicago was Humble Pie. Oh, okay. Not quite yeah. as bad. We did 26 cities in 26 nights opening for Jethro Tull. Oh. In, in giant stadiums. That about did us in. That was crazy. Yeah. Was, we, we, we've shared the stage with some strange people. If you go to our website... Uh, there's more information about Bruce Shipley than anybody ever probably want to know about. Many pages to click on, but uh, there's a page that, you know, people we've shared the stage with. And it's, we've shared the stage with a lot of people over the past 52 years, i got to say. So you guys got back together in what, like uh, 87 or something like that? Uh, I started doing shows here, traveling the country again. And yeah, we'd already stopped working for record labels. We got tired of being screwed and having them steal money. Mm -hmm. So we decided to form our own company and screw ourselves. <laughs> and so, Did you get screwed by Buddha? As a matter of fact, yes. A couple of years after the fact, Buddha didn't even exist anymore. And, and it was really a, a long, involved story. But anyway, our former manager with Good Karma decided to have their books audited and uh, found out that, yeah, we'd, we'd both been ripped off for about a hundred grand apiece. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you know what? The millions they'd stolen from Gladys Knight and the Pips and Curtis Mayfield and other artists uh, made us feel a little bit better. <laughs> we, at least they didn't screw us out of millions. It is amazing how often this happens. Oh, boy. So anyway, you, you guys still playing together? And yeah, I was, I was saying, too, after we decided to form our own company, we recorded two uh, independent CDs. One is entitled Shanghai and one is entitled Heartland. And you can purchase those through our website for anybody who wants to check them out. You know what else? Maybe you did it too. Our website is the only one I know of that you can click on any album we ever recorded, including bootleg releases and stuff we had nothing to do with, and listen to them free. Fidelity on some of it leaves something to be desired, but hey, it's free. What can I say? And my solo albums too. In fact, my solo, uh, I still call them albums. 
because they are albums of songs. Right. Uh, can only only be purchased through mail order through my P.O. box right here in the Ozarks. But if anybody's interested, I'm going to just blatantly plug them and uh, absolutely yeah, do go it. Go to our website and uh, they'll tell you how to do it. You said like 25 bucks, which includes shipping and handling, and with my P.O. box address, and I'll just mail whatever you want to you. Okay, you want to give the P.O. box address as long as we're here? Sure. It's P.O. box 150, Powersite, P-O-W-E-R-S-I-T-E, Missouri, 65731. All right. My latest, I have four. My latest one is called After the Storm. And, uh, yeah, 25 bucks, and uh, that covers the shipping and handling. And, and uh, just be sure and say which one you want. And I'll mail it to you. Okay, great. So who's your audience now? Is it is it all us old hippies? or geezers. Old geezers. Is that right? <laughs> well, not always. You know what? We're dr- we draw more young people, too, all the time. Some of them, you know, I mean, really young. And it blows our minds at how informed they are of our music. It's not all because of one toke over the line. You know, That's they, great. They know about our albums. Yeah, they show up with LPs. I guess they got them used record stores or eBay or something. I don't even know where they got them. But that's encouraging. That, that makes me feel really good to have the young folks. That's great. We don't do nearly as many shows. We don't live on the road anymore. We never want to do that again. That know, was my next family. question. How often do you go out? Well, it just it really varies. You know, sometimes, I mean, a busy year might be 20 shows. Okay. You know? And that, that's not even at one time, because that would mean being on the road for weeks at a time, and we don't want to do that anymore. I don't blame you. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed talking with you. You're, you're an easy guy to talk to. Oh, well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you, too. All right. right. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, good luck with your podcast, and hope it just really grows for you and everybody gets turned on to it. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Good talking to you, man. You, too. What a great guest. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for listening to the RPM 45 podcast. We'll be back again with a new one next Wednesday.